Daniel 5. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we confess that truly you are worthy to be praised with every thought and deed, with every word and action. Heavenly Father, as we gather this evening as your church here, that is our desire, is to lift you up, to bring you the glory that is due your name. Even now, as we open your word, as we study Daniel chapter 5, we pray that your spirit would guide us, that you would take the words of this book, the word of God, that you would plant it deep in us, that you would mold us into your image, that you would challenge us, that you would tear down those things in us that would rebel against your word, that we would submit to you, that we would obey, that your will would be done in each and every one of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was five years old, the movie, The Lion King, came out. <laughs> That's Ron over here shaking his head like, oh man. <laughs> I remember my parents gave it to me for my fifth birthday. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. There's a particular scene in that movie where uh, Simba is walking and, and they're singing a song and you see him progressively growing. When the song starts, he's this little tiny lion cub, and when the song ends, he's a fully grown lion with a full mane. Watching that movie with my children, they turned to me and they're like, how'd he grow up so fast? They could not, it just, it blew their mind that so much time had passed. How did he grow up so fast? In fact, a lot of movies are that way. It'll start in the past to kind of lay the foundation, and then it'll jump forward, and in the next scene, they're fully grown. And almost every single time that happens, my kids will turn to me and say, how'd they grow up so fast? I don't know why that's the one thing they pick up on, but it is. As we come to Daniel 5, it's almost like the passing of time in, in, in that way has passed. Daniel 5, as we come here, we're jumping ahead to 539 B.C. This is over two decades after Nebuchadnezzar has died. As we ended Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has just come out of this, this thing where, where he had this pride and God lowered him. He was eating grass like an animal. His, his nails and his hair grew like an animal and then God restored him and he praised the Lord. That's where we ended last, last week at the end of Daniel 4. As we come to Daniel 5, it's been over two decades. A lot has changed. And as we open to Daniel 5, we've moved from Babylon at its height under Nebuchadnezzar. To, as we'll see today in Daniel 5, Babylon's fall. A lot of time has passed. And a lot has happened. And a lot has changed, as we'll see as we work our way through this chapter. But one thing remains that God is still great. That's what we'll see this evening in this passage, that God is great. As we work our way through here, we'll see a foolish king 
a floating hand, and a fallen kingdom. First thing we see is a foolish king in the first four verses. We're introduced to this new king, Belshazzar. Really, he's not the sole king. He's a co-regent with his father, Nabonidus. In fact, you see hints of that later on in the chapter as he promises whoever can solve what this hand has written, I'll make you third in the kingdom. He can't be second because there's another king in the kingdom. He has to be third. So Belshazzar, he's co-regent with his father, Nabonidus. Nabonidus is off. He rules from somewhere else. Belshazzar is here in Babylon. So Belshazzar, this king, he makes a great feast for a thousand of his lords. The purpose of this feast, history tells us, is likely to lift morale. In fact, while the Babylon's fall, as we read here in Daniel 5, is shocking, the fall would not have been a surprise. History tells us that most likely the reason that they had retreated into uh, this fortress, the reason that they were having this feast, was because they had just faced a defeat. So they retreat into the king's uh, castle. The gates are closed. The king, seeking to lift morale, throws a party. They think that they can defeat us, but we're just going to party. I don't find it surprising when history backs up what the Bible teaches, because the Bible tells us history. But I do find it fascinating. I love reading stories where the truth that we read in the Bible is shown to be true in the sands of time. In fact, two Greek historians, Herodotus and Xenophon, both mention that there were drinking parties that took place the night that Babylon fell to the Persians. I find that fascinating. That the story that we find in Babylon 5, or in, in Daniel 5, is backed up by history. It's not surprising. It's just fascinating. I love reading that kind of stuff. And so that's what's going on. He's throwing this feast. He drink wine, the presence of all those who are there. And, and while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. It's a blatant and a purposeful act of blasphemy. In fact, we'll see later on in this chapter, this is the very thing that Daniel calls him out on. It is a blatant, blasphemous act. It says here in verse 2, which is father Nebuchadnezzar, the idea there is not necessarily his direct father, it's more of his ancestor. Maybe his grandfather or his great-grandfather. Nebuchadnezzar, someone who had gone before him. And while the kingdom was passed down to Belshazzar, what was not passed down was Nebuchadnezzar's uh, respect or even faith for Israel's God. We have a, an amazing statement by Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 4 as he is praising this God. We've read some amazing stories of what God has done in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And then as we come to Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, his ancestor, not that far removed, has none of that respect. 
It's a blasphemous act. It's a foolish act. And perhaps what is most foolish about it is that he knows better, as we will see. Secondly, we see a floating hand. That fit my F thing for the, that's why I went with floating. (laughs) In that same hour, as his heart was filled with pride, as he blasphemes the true God and worships these false gods, in that same hour as the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. This writing does not happen in the back corner of the palace somewhere. It happens right where the king can most clearly see it. In the light of the lampstand, on the back wall, it's likely the hand of God himself. MacArthur notes, Babylonian hands had taken God's goblets and held them in contempt to dishonor and challenge him. And now the hand that controls all men and which none can restrain challenges them. His hand appears and it wrote opposite the lampstand. It writes on the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote and the king's countenance changed. From joy, from revelry to terror. In fact, I love the descriptive nature of the next following words and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loose and his knees knocked against each other. It's almost like a cartoon. And you see that character gets scared and his knees are literally shaking. You've probably been there though. Been times when you're in the room with someone else and, and bad news is delivered. You need to sit down for this. As that news hits you, it literally knocks the legs out from under you. That's what's going on in this king. He's gone from joy, from revelry, to absolute terror. And he cried aloud to bring the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. Someone tell me what this is. Someone tell me what is going on. Tell me what this means. And yet once again, what we see in verse 8 is that pagan men cannot rightly interpret God's message. Once again, all these Babylonian wise men have no idea. They're useless. In verse 9, the king is greatly troubled. His countenance was changed. His lords were astonished. His party that was meant to lift spirits is having the exact opposite effect. As they look at this, as they see the, 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 the color in his face that is drained, the terror that is in his face and is in his eyes, the whole room is affected. Again, you've probably been in a situation like that before. Where in a moment you see the countenance change, the, the, the color drain from someone's face, and you know something is going on. But then the queen. It's likely not one of his queens, it's likely the queen mother. 
His queens would have been with him at this party, as was already established, but the queen is someone who would have remembered Nebuchadnezzar's days, clearly. The queen hears that something is going on, so she comes to the banquet hall. O king, let forever do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy God and in the days of your father light, understanding, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. It's a pagan woman describing God's blessing of Daniel. And as you come to verse 12, we have this fascinating truth that we see here. And as much as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. It seems here in verses 10 to 12 that Daniel has been mostly forgotten or retired. At this point, Daniel is approximately 80 years old. I think often as we read scriptures, we, we, th- we think that all these things just happen like this. Daniel goes straight from here to here to here to here to here. Daniel's life unfolded just like yours and mine. Hours and days and minutes and years at a time. Daniel's 80 years old at this point. He's, he's either been completely forgotten, pushed to the edges of the kingdom, or he's retired. Whatever it is, it's to the point that this king doesn't know who he is. But God was not done with Daniel yet. I think that's fascinating to to think about, to, to pause and to think about the time that has gone by. Daniel, who's used to being in the limelight, now it's been 12, it's been over two decades. He's been forgotten by the king, and it might even have even seemed to Daniel sometimes that God himself had forgotten him. Daniel had been to the heights of this kingdom. It's now relegated to the point where, where no one, except for this elderly queen, knows who he is. But God had not forgotten Daniel. God was not done using him. God knew exactly what he was doing. And he had his man exactly where he wanted him. And so Daniel, at 80 years old, is brought in before the king. The king speaks to Daniel, Are you the Daniel, who was one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Likely it's meant as an insult. It's likely meant to remind Daniel who he is, where he came from. You may have been great in 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 my ancestor's kingdom, in Nebuchadnezzar. You may have been great in his kingdom, but you're just a captive. And yet at the same time, even in that insult, there is the thick irony of Belshazzar turning to Daniel, whose God he's just mocked. And he finds himself turning to Daniel for help. I've heard of you. The spirit of God is in you. And the light, understanding, excellent wisdom are found in you. All these things. He goes on in verse 16. He promises Daniel the same rewards that he promised to his wise men. Just tell me what it says. 
As you come to verse 17, to the end of the chapter, we see the fallen kingdom. It's interesting, you'll note in verses 17 and following, that Daniel does not speak with Belshazzar with the same respect that we saw when he speak to Nebuchadnezzar. He speaks somewhat harshly to Belshazzar. Because not only had Belshazzar not learned from Nebuchadnezzar, but he had blasphemed Daniel's God. Daniel answers him right out, let your gifts be for yourself and give the rewards to another. I don't need your gifts, but I'll tell you what God says. He goes on, verse 18 and following, before interpreting the message, he rehearses for Belshazzar. He rehearses what God has done, what he knows. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty glory and honor and because of the majesty that he gave him all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him whomever he wished he executed whomever he wished he kept alive whomever he wished he set up and whomever he wished he put down it is God who put him there it is God who gave him that glory it is God who gave him that power the most high God But when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne. They took his glory from him. He was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like beasts and his dwelling was with wild donkeys. And they fed him with grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over to whomever he chooses. That's a sentence that we remember. That's a sentence we know. That's the exact same thing that God had said to Nebuchadnezzar. You will know this. And it's what Nebuchadnezzar confesses at the end of chapter 4. And that has not changed. That is still true. And that is what this king has failed to recognize. That's what Daniel calls him out. But you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You knew this. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You heard about what this God has done, and yet you still chose to blaspheme him. You challenged him. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Not only did you not humble him, yourself, you challenged this God. You lifted yourself up against him. Brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. How foolish you are, king, to spend your time worshiping these things. They don't hear you. They don't know you. They don't see you. They're not real. And all the time, the God who holds your breath in his, in his hands, you blaspheme. How foolish. He owns all your ways. He holds your breath, and you have not glorified him. 
Daniel holds nothing back as he talks to this king. He calls him out. He lets him know. Part of that might just be the fact that Daniel's 80 years old and he doesn't care anymore. But this is a good thing. This king needs to know this. This is what you have done. This is how foolish you have been. This are the lessons that you did not learn from Nebuchadnezzar and now you will learn them yourself. That's why the fingers of the hand were sent from him. And this writing was written, and this in the inscription. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. This is the interpretation of each word, mene, repeated twice for emphasis. It's the word numbered. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, it's the word weighted. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Numbered, weighed, and divided. Babylon will fall. Because the kingdom has fallen short. And it's the Medes and the Persians who will conquer. And the God that you mocked will take your kingdom. The God that you mocked. While you worshipped your images of stone and wood and gold. He will take your kingdom. Belshazzar, verse 29, rewards David, or rewards Daniel. He gives him these things. He said he would give them. He makes him third ruler in the kingdom, which at this point is a meaningless gift third ruler of a doomed kingdom. In verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. When God speaks, God acts. It's a phenomenal story. What does it mean for us? I think you have to go back to verse 21. Why did God do the things that he did to Nebuchadnezzar? What is it that Belshazzar failed to recognize? It is this, that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. That is the theme of Daniel. He is the most high God. He is the only God. He is the God above every other thing that you would lift up or that you would worship. He alone is worthy. He's the most high God and he rules in the kingdom of men. He is not absent. He is not separate. He is involved. He is active, he rules, and he appoints over it whomever he chooses. How do we respond to that? I think there's three things specifically that we do. 
First, we recognize the greatness of God. Belshazzar failed to recognize God's greatness. He failed to learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned before him. He failed to know what he should know. But it's not just enough to know who God is. We must respond rightly to it. And that's the second thing. Recognize the greatness of God, but then worship God for his greatness. Recognize who he is, and then fall on your knees and lift him up. Worship him, for he alone is worthy. And then trust God because of his greatness. Recognize who he is. Worship him for who he is. And then trust him day in and day out because of who he is. He is the Lord God, the Most High. He is great. And this chapter screams the greatness of God. It screams his sovereign control over every little detail. From where Daniel was for two decades, forgotten on the edges of the kingdom, wherever he was, God knew. The king in Babylon, whether Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, God knew. God put him there, and God was at work. From the highest of the heights of the kingdom to the lowest of the lows, God was at work. And the same is true today. God is great, but don't let you think that that, don't, don't let the thought cross your mind that, that means that, that God is so great that, that he doesn't care about the little things that are going on here. He is great. He is sovereign. And he is meticulous in what he does. So recognize who he is. Recognize what he does. Worship him for who he is and what he does. And then trust him day in and day out. Your God is great. The same God that did the amazing things that we have seen in the first five chapters of Daniel is the same God that we worship. He has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That first song that we sing, that God sang this, this evening, the news, that new song that we were introduced to, God of the Ages. He's the God of the past. He's the God of right now. He's the God of the future. He does not change. We're going to close this evening with the song, Bow the Knee. I think that's an appropriate response to the truths that we've seen in this chapter. To pause, to recognize our God and what he has done, and to bow the knee, to fall down before him in worship. What a privilege to come into God's presence, just to linger with the one who set me free as I lift my eyes and see his awesome glory. I remember who he is and bow the knee. He is king of all the ages. Bow the knee. Let's stand and sing, bow the knee.